The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Special guest for the hour, Steve Van Meter, who has a phenomenal following on YouTube. I'm, I'm a little jealous, Steve. And I, now, by the way, I see how hard it is to get subscribers on YouTube. Uh, so kudos to you for that. Yes, you, YouTube is an entirely uh, different animal on its own. Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's not easy, but uh, the rewards are out there for you. And I, I look forward to seeing your channel grow. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, Steve, for those who are not familiar with who you are, talk about your background, how you got involved in markets and what you're doing now. I've been in the industry uh, 20 years. I'm a portfolio manager. I run a strategy I created called Portfolio Shield. A few years ago, um, launched into the world of YouTube and, you know, been working hard on building it and my brand. And thanks to a large number of people along the way that helped me, um, here we are uh, you and to bring you and I together today. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it's interesting um, you, you use the term building your brand, right? And it's challenging to build a brand when you have a certain philosophy or approach and you happen to be in a period where that philosophy, that approach isn't really working, right? People always want to gravitate towards the, the soothsayer on the hill that's spot on at the moment they recognize who that person is. Let's talk about brand building for a bit in terms of how you view markets, because arguably there are people that are very bullish, people that are very bearish. They tend to brand themselves based on their outlook. But how do you, how do you like to frame who you are to YouTube subscribers and to clients for your own SMA book of business? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm personally bearish and that certainly does not have any direct reflection on my investments or you know, how, I, how I manage client portfolios. It's just a personal view that I've had for a long time that we're going to have another recession. It's probably going to be a, a financial crisis and likely worse than the great financial crisis. And so I kind of, you know, call myself the bond king because if you subscribe to theories such as our mutual fund, Brent Johnson, that during periods of recessions or economic slowdowns, they're usually the catalyst is a rising dollar. Well, the leverage play on a dollar is bonds. And so usually to alleviate the you know, a tight dollar, you have to have new dollars created. Well, how do you, new dollars get created? They get created in the commercial banking system and they don't get created at higher rates. They tend to, well, they can, but they tend to have a lot more created at lower rates. And that's why we ultimately see rates crash as growth and inflation 
inflation expectations uh, happen. So that was kind of more of a you know, of a personal view. My YouTube channel has uh, early on was about my view, and it's become a very broad channel where uh, we look at uh, different aspects of the news and the economic data, so um, people can perhaps interpret and understand what's going on out there. And then I, I build in a bit of the economic data to help people understand. It. So, so what are all these reports? Are we looking at you know, like today's retail sales data? You know, wow, it, it was a pretty decent report. But will it be a good report in in the months that follow? Are there other indicators we can look at and see where it's going? So. None of that directly translates into my investment strategy. It's it's a fully formula-based strategy. And right now, my strategy is hedging on, on a market downturn. But it's again, it's all formula-based. So it's not anything to do with my personal view. Okay, so Alex, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's a good direction to go. Because I do think that people seem to be under the impression that if I tweet a certain way or if I'm expressing a view on intermarket relationships, that means that I'm arguing it's a it's a call on what's going to happen next. But like you, right, I'm rules-based. I don't believe that you can really sort of be successful longer term unless you've got some kind of unemotional triggers that you follow religiously, right, even when in this small sample it's not working. So let, let's talk about that, that rules-based approach that you do for clients. Steve. I want to get a, a deeper understanding. I want the audience to hear how did you come up with your strategy, your approach, and what's sort of the underlying thesis behind it? Yeah, because uh, and I kind of want to dovetail off of what you meant about advisor emotion, and and that plays a huge, huge factor in a lot of money managers, and it can either make or break you. I mean, you, if your emotion is on the right side of the market, I mean, you you can have outsized returns, people love you, and market turns against you, and then all of a sudden those big returns can get. Uh, wiped out real fast, or if you have a view, you know that the uh, that you're bearish in an uptrending market, well, that will impact your returns as well. So, you know, when I created this, my my goal was really simple: is I I wanted to create a strategy that was better than the asset allocations models out there that took away the weakness of that risk parity, vol control. I wanted to create a mass market strategy that people could you know, use as a core part of their portfolio. And so what it does is it looks at, you know, it has a number of formulas, but simply it, it looks at the relationship between stocks and treasuries over a certain period of time. And if certain conditions are met uh, among the underlying conditions, then what it does is it reduces its equity exposure and adds long-term treasuries. And then it runs a second overlay formula that looks at the individual volatility of the position. So not linked to the VIX or anything like that. It looks at relative compared to each other and then biases more money into the least volatile position. So what the strategy is trying to do is because it's long the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. Now we currently work uh, are using with simplify funds as part of the downside hedge, but I'm sure you're familiar with that, Michael, that they have funds that have call and put options embedded in them. So we're using the put options now. But the idea was, it was how do we give, you know, the average investor out there, you know, who has worked all their life and saved up their money and they, they're going to be invested in the market of some flavor, uh, whether, you know, whatever risk level they want, but they're going to be out there, going to be invested. They can't afford a, a massive drawdown, but they still need to get the upside of the market. And so I just expressed all that that into a formula. So we're along the US equity market with unique hedging component and it, it has very impressive risk adjusted returns. Okay. So now you and I have share that similarity in the idea of using treasuries as a key component for defense as part of the opportunity set. Now I've got all kinds of data, all kinds of cycles, all kinds of history that shows that 
you follow these signals, you follow this approach, and in particular, when you follow the, the treasury trade as part of the opportunity set, it tends to work over multiple roll of the die. This year, it hasn't, right? Treasuries yep. have not been the hedge risk. And it's, I keep saying to people that are not understanding my approach that, you know, when risk off is acting like risk on, there's nothing that you can do except just just take it, right? It's just the reality. Yeah. So, so I want right. you to talk about I want you to talk about why treasuries are so critical to play defense. Yeah, it, it it all comes down to the monetary system. So when I developed my strategy, I took a lot of my understandings of the monetary system. I, I was a you know I've been a big student studying um, some of the greats, you know, Lacey Hunt, Jeff Schneider, and a number of other people who are just you know, the experts in the monetary system looked at credit cycles and it was really became clear that when you understand how our system works and you understand how dollars are created, that there's a reason why interest rates crash during recessions. And so it becomes the whole idea that the, the most proper way to hedge a portfolio, well, a lot of people say, well, why don't you go into cash? Well, there's no opportunity in cash. Now, I mean, it's great because effectively you're just moving to a neutral position. You have no, you have no downside, you have, but you have no upside. And the beauty of treasury is when everything goes wrong, those valueless treasuries can go up. And when you have a hedge that goes up, not only do you soften off that you know loss of the equity portion, but when your strategy, and again, I'm sure yours and mine are somewhat similar, and the whole idea of behind this is, is probably similar, is when you release that hedge or when the formula says, hey, it's time to dump that hedge, if, if you're just taking cash, which has not changed in value, and you're buying into the equity back in the equity, well, that's great. But what if you're taking your cash that you put into treasuries and they went up 30% and now you're buying back into equities? You have a lot more money at play. And that's really why the strategy you know, does as well as it does is because it takes its dry powder, hopefully appreciates it, which it does more often than not. And then it puts it back into work near market bottoms. So there's, there's a lot of nuances to that, and it relates to a lot of the ways that I tend to frame things. The, the problem with cash is that, to your point, there's no momentum. So you don't even have a chance at compounding. And that becomes problematic with any interaction with any signal that one follows, because if you're wrong, you don't have a chance at making money being in cash, so you can't compound. And that's why market timing studies show that market timing doesn't work, because risk off for most market timing studies is cash, right? If you're going short, it, it's, it's even worse, right? Because if you're in a false signal where you're supposed to play defense, but the market keeps going higher, now it's directional. Now you get hit one for one. And, and it's consistent with everything you've said. The whole idea with treasuries that you said it correctly is that they can go up, meaning yields can drop, but not always. And that gets into a discussion around this year, which again has been wildly frustrating. This year, cash and shorting have been the only thing that, that actually worked. I mean, aside from commodities, you can argue. But, and I'm sure you've done a lot of tests on this too, that tends to not work over long periods of time. Yeah. Let's go with that because I think that's important because, you know, in the the here and now, it's very very different than looking at longer cycles. And I think you brought a great point, Michael, because, you know, obviously investors are very short-sighted and that's just nature, particularly near, near bull market tops. And people, you know, are their investment time right. They'll tell you, I'm a long-term investor, but they won't stay in anything for you know more than 90 days if it's not working the way they think, because you know it's just chase, chase, chase. And I tell people that are coming into my strategy, they're like I'm targeting three to five year plus returns. I said, in most money managers, if you think that's a long time, I mean, you, and you could agree, right? And how many money managers out there are targeting three to five year returns? The answer is hardly any because they know they're not going to win. So it's 
it's like I'm targeting this. And so if you're coming in here with a 90 day you know, expectation or six month or one year, I'm not a hedge fund. I'm a managed strategy. I'm a, we have a long term goal. And if we have a bad quarter and we got tail lag, the strategy was hedge going into that final big drop. when um, we got hurt probably in similar fashion, as you mentioned, you did. And it didn't hurt my long term returns. And what's going to happen is it just rehedged this month at treasuries now being low. So it's like, well, hey, so we took a little bit of a hit. Big deal. Now we're looking from the bottom up. And that's what's cool is if you have the right time horizon and perspective, your strategy, you know, you have to have the the patience to go through the periods where it's not going to work. And that's not going to be all the time. It's going to be occasional, but that's you've got to have that, you know, forward thinking of where the strategy is going. Have you gotten some pushback, Steve, as I have from people saying, well, you know, it was obvious the Fed's going to raise rates. It was obvious you shouldn't have used treasuries. You know, you should change your risk off play. I, I always I always get the, those when I'm in a drawdown, but I'm curious to, to, to hear sort of what's been the sentiment by people that follow you. Yeah, that that's there's there's always people that say your your formula or strategy doesn't work. Now I, I do an excellent job of communicating with Kane with my clients, and I make it again make it very clear we're not targeting quarter quarter returns. We're not a hedge fund. The strategy is built around a formula and a concept that has proven itself, but it doesn't always work, and it's not perfect. There and again, I know you probably ran a whole bunch of scenarios on your strategies. Is there a perfect strategy out there? There's no perfect strategy, but so the question is: is you know, I'm not the I'm not the perfect man. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm I'm not the perfect guest on your show. But could I be good enough? And if maybe that's the whole point of all this: is is your strategy good enough? And do you actually believe in a, and understand how it's constructed to say, hey, you know what? There's going to be days my my wife's like, man, like maybe why did I end up married? Right? I mean, like I'm sure that, that every woman's had that day. You know, look at her husband, like why did I pick you? Right? But hey, maybe over time that was just one day in many years where hey, you know what? He's a pretty good guy and he does a good job and he's a good husband and he takes care of me. And and you know that. That's the whole point is we're in a long-term goal. You know, people can say, I invest for 40 years. I'm a long-term investor, but you trade your account every week. You're not a long-term investor. You're invested over a long-term, but you're not a long-term investor. And that's a huge difference. So I look at my strategy and say, is it good enough? Well, when I compare it to what's on the market, yeah, it, it smokes almost everything out there. So I can say with conviction, it's not perfect, but it's really darn good. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. By the way, the fact that a strategy is not perfect is probably why it continues to work, right? And this is kind of an interesting thought experiment. I, I used to always do this, this thought experiment on the road. If you have some strategy, some signal that's always working, you're just printing more money than the Fed. Well, then you launch that strategy out in the marketplace that can't lose strategy. It has no false signals, no drawdowns. What's the response by the marketplace to that strategy, which you know is is always working? That's based on some anomaly. Throw money at it. Well, then right. what happens to the anomaly? It goes away, right? And yep. it's, it's funny because I had this exchange with somebody who was, I had tweeted out yesterday, the day before, 
a link to the five different research studies I'm known for. And the person asked a valid question, said, you know, given that you put these research studies out there publicly, aren't you afraid it's going to be arbitraged away, the anomalies? And my response is no, because there's a lot of false signals. Yeah, things are right. always changing. Right, and that, and that goes to treasuries as the way to manage the false signals, right? Because to your point, they can go up. So if stocks go up and you're playing defense, you can still have a chance at making money with longer right. duration. Yeah, I mean, we had the, uh, uh, if not the biggest sell-off in treasury since the 1930s, and I'm like, well, great. So we got through that. With, I mean, yeah, we took a hit, but it wasn't anything out of line that, you know, far from my where my peer strategies are running. And I still am beating them over a longer period. So I'm like, hey, this is great because now the downside risk is largely probably over. So the next time it comes back and rehedge, which it did this month, I, I did it with a smile because I was like, man, this is great. And they could write to my clients and say, hey, look, the downside exposure now on, on bonds is probably fairly minimal. So this is good. We may see a little more drawdown against the hedge, but we've got a lot of upside now because we're probably through it. And that's where you have to look at your strategy. You can't always be up, but that's a mistake, right? That happens in bull markets. And, and you know this, Michael, is people get their statements, they see the losers and they sell them and they buy the winners. And next thing you know, everybody owns the same darn 10 stocks. The market goes illiquid into a bear market. Everybody starts selling the same thing and the whole thing thing crashes. It's just because people do not balance out their risk and they just don't get it. Yeah, and that, that point about bonds is interesting. I put out that tweet before that, you know, they wanted yield when there was none. Now they don't want yield when there is some, right? And I, which I think <laughs> right. is kind of interesting as a way of framing it. And, and by the way, to that point, it's, you know, I've always made this misargument from a risk on risk off perspective that the challenge with very, very low yields is that you have to squeeze blood from stone, right? Every single basis point makes the risk off, you know, price change larger. And then on top of that, it just becomes hard to really make some capital appreciation in treasuries if you're already starting at a starting low yield. Well, yields have risen now. I mean, to your point, treasuries have gotten smoked, yields have spiked. Now at least there's some room to play yeah. that convexity when the risk-off period does reassert. Now that goes to the the name of the space here, right? Risk-off behavior returns. I saw you had liked one of the tweets I put out about that. So what what makes this 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 year so beyond abnormal is not just the the treasury spike, but it's also in the way it coincided with the stock market decline, right? That you had this right. unrelenting, synchronized drawdown in what is supposed to be the hedge against equities and equities. Okay. Now, as of last week, it seemed to me that maybe some of that behavior started to change. Maybe it's yeah. wishful thinking. Maybe not. Yeah, I saw your post. I saw your post on that. Yeah, I was like, uh, I think I probably like that one too. <laughs> right, right. So, so let's talk about that for a moment because... I think a lot of people get this narrative around rising rates wrong. I'll give my thoughts on that, but I want to hear your thoughts on this this idea that, well, yields have to go a lot higher to counter inflation, but then again, you got all this debt in the system. Yeah, and, and that's completely not true at all because you people look back to the 70s and I'm like, oh, okay, look, this is happening again. Well, there's a huge difference between the 1970s and now. I mean, you, you can argue very easily the 1970s had a lot to do with monetary inflation. I mean, it, the central banks just let the system run wild and it, you know, money was moving, the velocity of money was very high. There was a large number of commercial banks. So you just saw just money moving around and then during 
during periods of high inflation. So when you think about money and loans, you know, when you when you borrow money, money's created. And when you pay the loan back, the interest stays in the system and the actual principal is destroyed as you pay it back. So during periods of high interest rate, you have all this money. I mean, you just have tons of money sitting in the system and it was moving quickly, couldn't go anywhere. Today, the inflation we're seeing has nothing to do with the central banks. It's all due to the supply chain issues. I mean, maybe a small bit of it, you could argue, is central bank. So the so investors look at that and say, oh, wow, look at the 70s. Inflation went up, rates went up. Well, I'm going to sell bonds. And so then they all started selling bonds. And then algorithmic strategies started selling bonds. And actually, you know, everybody's selling bonds because everybody's selling bonds. And then they get sit back and they're valid. Oh, look, see, interest rates went up. Yeah, well, because you sold. And that the reason they're going to go down, and this is a, probably one of the key things I think people need to understand, is there has to be demand for loan uh, for money at higher rates. It's no different than a proc. So, so it, it, Michael, if you and I opened up a retail store, let's just say we sold one proc and a, a widget, and we put the widget out on the shelf, and you and I are really greedy, so we just started raising the price on those widgets. And people come in, buy them, and finally we're like, man, we're just going to keep raising, raising. We're selling a million dollars a widget. Now, no one comes in. And we think, you know, man, nobody's coming and buy our widgets. I think the problem is we just raise the price to a million and a half. Price must be too low. And that's the way people look at the bond market. And they're doing it completely wrong. The product of a bank is loans. So if you have higher rates and nobody wants to borrow from them, the solution isn't higher rates. It's not like, man, rates are 7%. Man, I'm going to wait till they're nine so I can get that mortgage. I really want bank to make a lot more money. They think about it all wrong. The product of a bank is money and lending. And the only way they're going to get more people to come and buy their product and borrow from them is where there's demand for rates. And so you look at particularly refinance lending is one of the best indicators of this. As rates go up, you're seeing the demand for refinance goes down. And the bread and butter for these big commercial banks love refinance loans. And people say, well, they have to go higher. Great. Well, then the banks are going to be out of business because nobody wants to borrow at these higher rates. And that's why we see that long channel. You know, I'm sure you've had posted charts on those, the long channel of rates dropping. Why did they end up going down? It's simple. They have to fall far enough to spur lending demand. So where did all these people re finance during the crisis near the lows. So that means to me that rates could actually go negative, maybe not on mortgages, but you could see rates across the curve uh, go near zero or negative because they're going to have to fall far enough to get people to borrow. And that's the thing that most people don't get. All right. So that becomes a, a good transition to the housing market because I've made this point many times. I think the Fed would probably also agree with that, with this idea that the wealth effect is not so much about the stock market, it's really about home values. It's both. Yeah, no, but but more people, you know, the biggest asset for most people, it tends to be their homes. It's, it's you're, right. you're correct, it's both, right? But, but in terms of kind of the broader economy, I'd argue it's, yeah, housing is a bigger driver of credit creation than, than most people realize from that standpoint. Now, right, to your point, if it's a combination of supply chain plus, you know, demand and sheer amount of currency, you know, being printed and, and dollars post-COVID, what are your thoughts on how the housing market can play out going forward? I mean, personally, I think it's due for some kind of massive, massive reversal, but but lay out your thesis there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no question. You see home buyer demand is going down as prices go up and rates go up. I mean, it's a perfect storm. You know, wait, inflation-adjusted wages are negative, and there are people, you know, particularly younger people that want to buy homes, and they're already being squeezed by inflation, and they're looking at the price of homes, and they're, you know, now particularly maybe with markets coming down, they're, you know, they're their collateral, their 20, you know, their, their down payment and other things, they, they just don't have it. It's not rising fast enough to meet what they need. And you see this issue where, you know, 
higher prices, higher rates, higher monthly payments. They can't afford it. And so they end up staying put. And eventually, again, it's just simple supply and demand. As demand goes away, and of course, the Fed made it clear, we're going to start unloading some of these mortgage bonds and try to keep rates on mortgages higher. They need out. They want housing prices to come down. They want demand to come down because they believe that that's causing part of the inflationary problem. The, the argument I keep on hearing about housing is that there's just not enough supply. Right. And I, I mentioned this on a prior space that I was bored one morning and I, I looked at, OK, what are the estimates of housing shortage? So it's something like three million houses are short relative to demand. But then if you were to look at the number of second homes, people that are buying outside their primary residence, there's 10 million second homes. Right. So it is interesting also that what's happened with the housing market as far as this idea that there's a housing shortage is really not driven by primary residents, but rather by investments, by Airbnb, yep. by Verbo, right? Things like that. If housing is going to decelerate or decline, the place most people naturally go to is the great financial crisis. There's a, there are some parallels, some not, but I want, I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, if you have sort of a bear market on housing, how do you think that plays out for, for other financial markets and for the system overall? I, I think the the financial system is highly leveraged. I mean, you look at just the equity market, there's a ton of margin debt. I mean, as you just mentioned, you know, there is a demand for housing. It's it's the people that need to get in the home, you know, the first time buyers, they can't get in because the speculators have so much more money that they can just outbid them and you know, they can drive the price up and force people to buy. And I, I think there's a massive amount of leverage in the system, but that's normal. And you know, you talk to people and say, Well, I, it's not there. You know, there are a lot of safeguards have been put in. You know, they say that after Every recession. All right, we're going to go and, and make sure this can't happen again. Well, great financial crisis wasn't supposed to happen again, and it did. You know, so I, I think we see a lot of this leverage come out due to the very easy Fed policies and the fiscal stimulus, and uh, you know, demand for housing is going to come down as you know the markets come down and people are buying the debt, which is like, like crazy, thinking they're going to make a bunch of money. And what happens when that money gets torched? Well, maybe they're gambling with their down payment, or maybe that's part of their uh, net worth that goes to calculate their you know ability to qualify for a mortgage well that's gone uh, or down significantly so they they're out of the market so yeah i think housing comes down i, I think the system just just is going to get obliterated like it did before but it'll be something different this time yeah and it, it is remarkable how it's such a global phenomenon on the housing side right because obviously covid was global and you know, i made this point i've, I've sp- spoken to people in australia and in finland and Everything they say about their local housing market is no different than the U.S., right? So you have this kind of global, whether they want to call it a bubble or not, it's not clear, but global overpriced movement in in housing. Okay, now let's talk about that and how it relates, again, back to treasuries, right? Because the argument is that the cure for high price is high price, and interest rates are nothing more than the price of money. If housing were to break down or at least decelerate, do you think that the Fed would suddenly start to reverse course or they, to your point, they want to see it go down, but maybe not too much. No, the Fed's not going to reverse course. That's the that's the bet everybody's making right now is the Fed reverses course. And historically, we've seen that, right? You know, we're, we're going to make all these rate hikes and then, you know, things, the market goes down. Oh, well, you know, we're we're going to pause and and maybe let the market digest this for a couple months and then, then we'll hike again. Uh, this time, uh, that's not going to happen, and I'm, I'll, I'll give you my opinion why. And uh, is if you look at the equity markets, ninety percent of all stocks are owned by 10, per, 10 wealthiest percent of Americans. I mean, if you if you have ownership in stocks, you're probably one of the ten 
you know, top 10%, wealthiest people in this country. Congratulations. The other 10% of the equity market is owned by 90% of the people. They have a negligible amount of money in the market. If the market goes up or down, it does not change how they feel. It doesn't change you know, whether they go out uh, and buy things or spend money. But that wealthiest 10%, well, when their value goes up 30, 20, 30, 40%, they go out and buy cars, second home, big fancy vacations. So the Fed's got a simple bet here, Michael. Look, we think the economy is in pretty solid shape, right? I mean, that's their opinion. That's always, of course, their opinion. There's all these jobs available. If the equity market comes down, 90% of the people aren't going to care. It doesn't affect their day-to-day life. In fact, it has a minimal effect on their long-term because they don't own very much of it. But if we can throttle the spending down of that wealthiest 10%, that means they're not going to buy as many cars. They're going to stop buying all these homes. They're going to stop going on all these fancy vacations. Their consumption is going to drop down significantly, and that's what they're looking for. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. And, and, but again, there has to be a point, presumably, where they will step in. I think that the, the issue is that if they try to thread the needle and, and leverage is so high, you can cause a cascading margin call, right? Which you can argue is part of partially what happened this year because margin calls tend to affect all asset classes, including obviously treasuries and, and cryptocurrencies to some extent, right? But it just seems to me that there's so much fragility there that if you had the Fed trying to make markets go down gradually, that's probably not a good bet to make. In other words, it's, it's kind of like crash or not crash, right? So, so let's talk about the risk of a tail event here. Because I do think that what's remarkable in the way that this year has played out is you have black swans everywhere, right? You have the yen, you have bonds, you have commodities. People just looking at the S&P would say, well, it's a run-of-the-mill correction. Do you think that we could be in a situation where equities act with a lag and then have some sort of real whoosh lower? Talk through that that idea that stocks may be the last to fall in a, in a hard way. Did anybody listen to Fed Chair Powell's last press conference? He channeled Paul Volcker, who, to kill inflation, knocked down two recessions. I mean, well, if we just get one, if that's his view of what we need to get done, I mean, we've got to bring the number from 8.3 down to two. I mean, that, that doesn't just happen tomorrow. And the easiest way to do it for the Fed is to bring equity prices down. They know it affects a small percentage of the people. Those people still have plenty of money. But if you can, again, throttle the spending of those wealthiest 10% of people, because the 90% are being affected. I mean, look, inflation is affecting all of this. But those who do not have the wealth effect are being impacted even more. So those people really need you know, prices to come back down. They, they're, again, their wages are negative against inflation. So look, you throttle the stock market, you throttle the housing market, and does it really affect everybody else? Uh, well, if, if they're lucky, no. If they're wrong, well, then I guess we're going to find out just how much pain um, is in the some pain to come, according to Powell. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So earlier you mentioned, Steve, that you know your view is bearish, but again, you don't necessarily invest that way because it's about a rules-based approach, right? Correct. So this is more of a more of a question of how do you manage your emotions when you are 
bearish and you have that conviction of your bearishness, but your strategy says to go long equities, right? Oh. I mean, I, I, for me, the answer is simple. You just kind of follow it no matter what. Yeah, right? yeah. But, no, but no think, issue with that at all. Um, in fact, some people like, yeah, well, I question that. I'm like, the strategy is more right than I am. So uh, you know, if it says go long, well, there's probably a better chance that it's right. But, but my view has always been since the last recession, there will be another recession. It's going to be really bad. Uh, I Obviously, I the pandemic threw my timeline way off because we were actually sliding into a global recession. Um, back in 20, late 2018 and into 2019, pandemic's timing, just just very good for that. Um, but it doesn't say at the end of the day is that's what happens. But overall, between all of that, my strategy, whatever it says to do, no question asked, I do it. Yeah, and I always make this point that you got to be careful. Like I've had people say to me, you know, do you uh, ever subjectively overlay your thinking on, on your signals? And my response is, well, if you do that, well, now any kind of backtest you've done is kind of irrelevant. Well, it's invalidated. Because right? now you're introducing the variable yourself. Well, the SEC says you can't. I mean, based on our, from my firm's perspective, is if you're running a rules or formula-based strategy and you deviate from it at all, it is no longer a rules or formula-based strategy and you cannot say that. Period. So exactly. the answer is it's always what it is and it will not be anything else. And people always ask, well, what will cause you to change it? And I said, well, if the global monetary system changes, that would be the point where the question is, would Treasury still be a valid hedge? And that's where that would need to be revisited. Until that day, it is, it is exactly what it is and will not be a whole lot different. I think when we talk about treasuries and you start to really get that aha moment, it does take a while. And then, like you said, there there is that day that it occurs. You know, people can say all they want. It's like, well, how can I be the bond king? How can I like, aren't you losing money? It's like, look, it's no different than if you were, if you believe in say Bitcoin and you were buying at 60K and now it's at 30, are you, did you sell everything? Or are you just buying the dip? If that's your belief that it's going to go to 120 or, you know, a million or whatever it is. Well, in my conviction, in my view, is that rates are going to go zero or negative or darn near there somewhere. Then I look at this, I look at treasury yields going from two to 3% is just opportunity to continue to buy more. And I think that's what a lot of investors miss out is when, when you really understand your thesis and you really understand how the system works, you can take a long-term bet. You cannot worry about it. I mean, you can, you, you sure you're probably going to lose money in the middle of it, but you just keep buying and bring your cost basis down. And that's kind of, you know, what I do. You know, it's funny because I always find that, and this is kind of a good discussion too, Steve, that a lot of people misunderstand Treasury's role in a portfolio, right? So I, I always make this point that most investments are basically a, a degree of beta, right? Where Treasuries are unique is that when you have high stress in markets, they act like a short on equities without the risks of shorting, which is really what diversification should be. But maybe talk about, Steve, what you've seen in terms of people's misunderstandings of the role of treasuries in a portfolio and why you really do have to consider that as part of the opportunity set. Yeah, I mean, it's simple. Um, if you own a home, you have homeowner's insurance. If you have a car, you have car insurance. Well, hopefully you have health insurance, um, or maybe renter's insurance. Well, if you never get sick, why do you have health insurance? If you put the odds of your house having a major catastrophe, pretty low, why not just cancel that? Eh, if renter's insurance, who really cares? Car insurance, well, you say you're a safe driver, great. Can't, why don't you just get rid of all your insurance? Well, life insurance, uh, what do you need that for? That's the same thing. All, what are treasuries? You know, what, what are our strategies like yours and mine doing, Michael? They're just hedging risk. 
And, you know, you, you really don't know. I mean, I could get in my car right now. I'm in an accident a long time, but what's, who's to say that I'm not going to pull out and, and get hit? Or maybe while I'm gone and getting hit in the car, the, the building I, I live in gets burned down. Or uh, maybe in the middle of that, I have a heart attack right before the car, you know, before I get in that accident. You know, how do you know any of these things are going to happen? You, you don't. And that's the problem is insurance is a drag on your investment of whatever your asset. I mean, it could, it's a drag on my house or apartment or a car or life. It's, it's an additional cost that I actually hope never pays. Like I, in an ideal situation, I, I don't, you know, you don't wake up every day. Maybe I can't wait for that life insurance to cash in. Wait, you're not here. So like, no, you don't want that. And the same thing with your portfolio insurance. You really actually would be better off if it never actually came into play. It's just when it does, you're going to be so thankful because if if your insurance, your treasuries and your portfolio are functioning correctly, when everything is going down and they go up, you have that dry powder that's appreciated in value. Again, we talk about you know cash versus treasuries or it just in general, if you have a hedge that goes up, you can sell that hedge and buy more of the things you really want. That's the beauty of it. But the only way to do it is you've got to carry some around from time to time. Now, we're not, 100%, we're not hedging 100% of the time. We're hedging based on our rules or our formula and hopefully having a better outcome where we're not constantly insuring the portfolio. But you look at asset allocation models and things like that, you're, you're always carrying insurance. So how do you alleviate that drag on your portfolio and still you know, get as much upside? Well, I think that's something that you and I uh, independently have tried to solve that problem. You look at duration, you know, yields collapsing, which they're going to have to at some point. Uh, the kind of the last year to drop is, and I think Michael, you agree, it's kind of unusual historically to see, you know, the, the markets moving down and other things moving down. The only two next things that are up are crude oil, effectively energy and yields. You, I mean, it's, but, it's kind of I unusual. Say, but real, real quick, and I will say that, and I made this point: even in the seventies, you did not have this sequence of this. Really, we what happened this year? Literally, you cannot find it in history. In terms of right. the sequence of treasuries and equities. And, and I want to add to that is what people say, you know, because sometimes you get feedback say, well, your formulas don't work. It's like you you don't build a formula around effectively a one-off event. And it would be like, well, well, should I you know, get some insurance in the event that an asteroid comes down and crushes me? Nah, I should just, if I'd really worried about that, I should probably just get some life insurance that covers a lot of different deaths instead of one that pays out, you know, a bazillion dollars in the, in the event I get hit by an asteroid. Well, you don't build your portfolio about around a, a one-off event. And that's that's real key. But looking at the market, even, I mean, you if the, the notion that equities goes up during deflation, well, uh, the great financial crisis said that's not how it works. So I'll, I'll go with the fact that I think bonds, uh, bond heavier portfolios are going to have the opportunity here. And uh, the equity market is heavily leveraged and comes unwound at some point. So I, I do agree with the market is going to completely misread um, drop in, in interest rates, treasury yields. And we have to understand that the rising treasury yields is usually a sign that financial conditions are easy. Now, we can already argue that yields are not didn't specifically rise because financial conditions were easy. They rose a lot because everyone sold. And when everyone starts selling everything else, that uh, starts selling with it. And so when yields go down, it implies that financial conditions are tightening. Now, what, what is the reaction? Action going to be uh, if you'll start to go down. Well, then you should start to see crude. It becomes the last shoe to drop. It starts to fall. Now, okay, so we've got a Fed meeting in what about, I think, less than a month now, Michael, or thereabouts. Uh, so how is the Fed going to interpret falling yields when they have made it very, very clear 
that they actually want higher interest rates. Now, when of course, we don't want to understand that when the Fed says that, they're referring to the front end of the curve. That's what they control. But they but they have insinuated they want to keep mortgage rates up because they want to crush demand. So if rates start falling, what is the Fed going to do? Oh, another 50 basis points. And then they're going to tell us, hey, guess what? Uh, we're going to have to do another 50 basis points following meeting. And then after that, that's what we're seeing is the variable that everyone's overlooking here is the Fed usually in the past makes these little quarter percent. Sometimes they take a little pause here and there. It's very methodical, 50 basis points. And then you're going to slap on quantitative tightening on top of that here starting next month. Are you kidding me? The market's going to massively misread this. Everybody's buying, buying the dip like a, a fool right now. And you start to look at liquidity. I'm, I'm, I don't have a target on credit spreads. It's kind of, I'll, I'll let Michael field that one if he wishes. But if you look at liquidity, there's a couple good securities to look at. Um, GDX is one of them. I mean, it went, you know, just fell off a cliff from 41 down to 31, but notice how fast that move was. You know, GDX is a great sign of liquidity. EEM is another one. And you start to look at some of these securities and they're telling you, man, liquidity is tight and you're falling yields and that will bring on even more Fed pain. Oh man, uh, the stocks misread and then go lower. What's notable to me is everyone's buying the dip, wanting that that big bear market rally. They all think they're going to cash in a big, you know, 30, maybe 50% gain. And you're just clearly seeing this massive liquidity drain against this massive flows. And maybe there is no event. Maybe it's just the fact that everyone just runs out of, starts running out of money due to inflation, which I think is an absolute factor here. And, you know, there's that, there's that day you come home and uh, sit down and say, well, the wife, well, uh, you know, we need to pay these bills. We need to feed the kids. And, and he's saying, well, I need to cover my margin you know, uh, because the market's down and I've been buying. And it's like, well, uh, yeah, you can't, we're, we, we can't do that. We don't have enough money. And now all of a sudden people start turning the sellers. And then next thing you know, they're selling in an illiquid market. And uh, well, there it all goes. That, that's actually an interesting way of framing it. I hadn't thought of that, Steve, but I think that there's a lot of logic to that, that just like people will have to decide as to whether or not to buy the next grocery items or go to a movie because of inflation, that it, it's an interesting way of forming the discussion around leverage and what could cause a bigger margin call. Because if we all agree the system is so levered, if financial assets are so levered, it just takes a small number of marginal sellers to cause an unwind. And those sellers could do the unwind because they literally have to use money to pay for day-to-day -day bills. Yeah, I mean, look back to uh, the 30% decline in March 2020, 1% of passive investors sold. Now, could you imagine if something that freaked out and 2% sold? Do you know what 3% would do? Take the market to zero. There's no, there's no liquidity. There's no, there are not enough buyers to handle a flood of market cap passive sellers. And that should be the fear of the market is when everybody does turn and start selling for whatever reason. That's what's interesting is, I mean, you look at the tape. I mean, market go, you know, dips and people come and buy. And then it goes back up and then it comes back down during the day and people come and buy. Everybody wants this big bear market you know, rally. And there's really just no liquidity. And you know, when we see QT starting here in two weeks and then another 50 basis point height, which uh, I think, Michael, you and I agree it's baked in the cake at this point. Like clearly liquidity is being drained and everyone's buying. I mean, so I don't know, maybe there's no a bear market bounce this time. Well, I will say, I mean, ARC is the clearest example of that. I mean, there's it, just been no give, right? And there's like, they, they, and they keep throwing money at it thinking that that's the low, that's the low, that's the low. And then 
it still goes lower. Right. I mean, that, that is maybe the perfect example. I'm curious your thoughts, Steve, on commodities and again, how that interacts with treasuries here, right? So classic intermarket analysis would be commodity prices rise, yields rise because it's a form of cost push inflation. But right. that, that can only go so far when leverage is as high as it is in the system. Uh, and you have a lot of people calling for a big secular you know, bull run in commodities. You would think that that should mean yields would keep rising if that intermarket relationship holds. But as we've been talking about, there's a lot of nuances to that. So talk about how you think about commodities here and and what does that mean for interest rates overall? Yeah, I think commodity prices at some point, and, and I don't know if they have peaked or or are soon to do that. But it again comes down to demand. You know, average household, you know, gas prices go up and their food prices are up, their rents are up, their insurance costs are everything's up. Well, you got to give somewhere. Well, instead of driving, you know, all over the place at any time, you start planning out your trips, minimizing, you know, your travel time. And, you know, vacations will at some point get canceled as the market goes down. Demand will go away on its own here. You know, plus you have the you know, Biden administration you know, uh, unloading the SPR uh, at 30 million barrels a month. I mean, that's, that's bound to have an impact if we start to see Cushing inventories rise, which they are, you know, have at least the sign that they bought them. When Cushing inventories rise, uh, crude prices fall. Also notably, when Cushing inventories rise, yields bottom out and start to go down. So I think at some point, I don't know which one is the leader here, if it's yields going down or if it's commodity prices, but uh, something you know in the not-too-distant future here breaks. Let's say the you know we'll just use an average downturn right now across the board twenty percent. So you say these wealthy ten percent are down twenty percent on their their net worth, and that certainly impacts. You know maybe they're not going to go out and buy a new Lambo now, and well that you know has downstream effects. So if if markets don't go back up, you know then they don't feel they start to feel rich at the level they're at, and maybe maintain their spending as you said their debt service at that level. So you're right. I think duration you know, does have an impact. And look at March of 2020, we had a shock, and then the markets came roaring back. So the, there wasn't a duration effect on the downturn. Had there been, that would have changed things. But because there wasn't, uh, we got the opposite. People threw money in the markets, and it went up, and so they started spending more. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, well articulated. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Steve. Check out his YouTube channel. Steve, I always enjoy listening to you and, and talking with you. I appreciate you spending the hour with all of us here. I'm doing another two spaces today, one with Nancy Davis of Ival in uh, about an hour, and then one talking about semis for a different spin on investment opportunities uh, sponsored by Columbia Threadneedle. Uh, everybody, again, uh, appreciate all of you joining continuously and enjoy the rest of your day if I don't see you later. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And again, thank you, everyone, for joining us. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. 
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.